Welcome to Getting Common with Professor Carlos Chapman. Getting Common covers a variety of topics and features guests from business, law, politics, government, education, and some of the most insightful entrepreneurs. It's a refreshing common sense approach to some of the most important discussion points today. Now, here is your host, Carlos Chapman. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Getting Common. I am your host, Carlos Chapman. In my day job, I'm an associate professor at Washington and Lee's Law School. The topic of today's episode is, should the law subsidize driving? And my guests, Greg Schill and Sarah Bronin, have written extensively on our nation's obsession with driving and our driving culture and the structures and laws that fuel our reliance on cars. Sarah had to to step away for a minute. So what I'm going to do is have Greg introduce himself and start. And then when Sarah, uh, we talk to Sarah about the first question, uh, she'll just introduce herself. So Greg, go ahead and introduce yourself for our guests. Thanks, Carlos, and thanks for having me. I'm a law professor at the University of Iowa, and uh, I write about transportation and law, and I'm excited to be here. Awesome. You know, so to kick us off, you know, when I first started reading Greg's work, um, you know, and before I ever read Greg's work, in my opinion, I was like, I just happen to like driving. I didn't really think about the structures and the laws in place that made me need to love driving and need to like driving. So Greg, I'd love for you to just start out and tell us, you know, what role has the law played in us developing this culture of being reliant on cars? Yeah, I think that's a great way to frame it, Carlos. Um, Let me just preface this by saying I grew up in uh, about an hour outside of Detroit. I was going to the Detroit auto show in diapers. Um, I personally like cars not everybody who uh, shares the opinions that I'm going to voice today has that perspective. Um, But um, I don't think that really matters very much. And let me just say why. I think there's cars as, you know, a tool, cars as a passion or a hobby. And then there's cars as something that we're dependent on, you know, and nobody wants to be dependent on uh, a technology. Um, Certainly not they, they want to be able to have some choice. And they also want to, I think, minimize the costs of that technology, whether it's for themselves or the social costs. So um, I like cars. I enjoy going to a target shooting range or shooting skeet, but I think we ought to have rules that make you know gun ownership and gun use safe as well. Um, so that's kind of how I would analogize it. Um, on the law point, um, there are a lot of legal structures that make driving um, de facto necessary. And uh, anybody who's not tuning in from a big city on the East Coast or maybe San Francisco probably uh, lives this reality every day, where if you want a jug of milk or take your kids to school, um, really the only option is a car. Um, And that's uh, absolutely partly a choice, partly a question of consumer preference um, and American uh, culture, but it is also partly a, a question of law, which we'll be getting into. All right. And now Sarah is with us. So Sarah, what we'll have you do is introduce yourself and then I will uh, kick the first question off to you. Sure. I'm Sarah Bronin. I'm a professor at Cornell University in the Department of Planning and uh, also affiliated with the law school. And I have a past history as a city planning commission chair. So one reason I invited uh, Sarah on the show is because she's both an architect and a lawyer. Um, and Greg kind of kicked us off with explaining how 
while we have a passion for cars and we can like cars, there are certain aspects of the law that make it a necessity. Um, I think it would be great if you could explain to us how policies have combined with structural design to make us dependent on cars. And specifically like, you know, the idea that we all are in single family, single passenger cars. Yeah, so um, I think a lot of how we get from one place to another has to do with how we design our cities and how we design our roads. So uh, zoning policies that separate land uses from each other, that separate residential uses from commercial uses, from shops, from um, services, from offices, that kind of zoning has led to more driving. So you would call that the rules of how we create our community. In addition, we have rules that dictate how our roads must be designed, uh, how wide they have to be, how wide the lanes have to be, uh, whether there can be crosswalks or not, and what they have to look like. So these rules, unfortunately, tend to be written in ways that favor drivers over other kinds of users. So the in terms of the design of our cities and the design of our roads, we've written laws in a way that uh, has ended up reinforcing uh, a car culture, even when many people, as we know, may not want even to use cars. You know, just the zoning thing always makes me think, I'm from Houston, Texas, which has no zoning, right? It's it's notorious for having no zoning. And, and when I think about the neighborhood that I grew up in, you know, the nearest bus stop was half a mile away. Um, and that like, you kind of needed to walk further than half a mile to get to the bus stop. Cause I was in a subdivision and, you know, you had to like walk out to the main street, but even when you walked out to the main street and this gets to uh, Sarah's point about the design, like the sidewalk would end. So if I wanted to walk to the grocery store, I would be walking like in a field next to like fast moving cars. Right. So even in a place like Houston that has no zoning, we have roads designed in a way without the emphasis of zoning that clearly favor cars over people. Um, and I just wonder, you know, in both of your in both of your scholarship, you know, have you explored like how that happens, even in places where we don't have zoning in place, um, we still are prepping cars when we design roads. Well, I'm going to hop in because I have a Houston story of my own. Um, I uh, clerked in Houston, so I lived there for a year. And I lived about a mile from uh, the courthouse. Um, and I did own a car, but I it's only a mile. And it was a pleasant enough walk, with one exception, which is I had to play Frogger to get across a freeway off-ramp. I think it was 45 South. Mm-hmm. Um, and the alternative, of course, you know, I could have gone around. It would have, at, it would have virtually doubled my uh, journey. Um, so you know, that I didn't do that. And it it felt safe enough at the time. I was a young, healthy person, um, fully able-bodied and everything, but not everybody has those uh, privileges. And um, of course, even then I was taking some risks. Um, But, uh, and then, you know, there were lots of stories along the way. People would pull over and ask if I needed a ride, if if anything was okay. Meanwhile, Meanwhile, I'm walking downtown in the fourth biggest city in America, which should be a normal activity. Um, so, uh, yeah, we, you know, design our roads in a way quite independent of zoning to foster uh, fast driving at the expense of other forms of transportation, either, even at the expense of uh, slower, safer driving, and also beyond transportation at the expense of other uses, right? So um, if your kid's elementary school is on a road and the playground maybe abuts that road, you might have one opinion about how fast 
car should be driving on that road versus if your only goal is to get from point A to point B and that school with that road or is between point A and B, then you probably want to, you know, high, more highly value speed over not just safety, but like community health, community development. Unfortunately, we've created a system where the people who travel the longest distances and want to go longest, fastest longest, have longest, the most power. Oh. Um, and so uh, that's there, of course, uh, racial and economic equity, you know, uh, dimensions to that. Um, but that's that's a part of the problem. All right, Sarah, do you have anything to add to that? Like, how do we end up even in places without zoning with these design flaws? Oh, Sarah's frozen. All right, well, I'll ask my next follow-up question, which is this. You know, it, it sometimes feels like a chicken-egg problem to me. Um, you know, is it just that we want to travel alone in cars, so we demand these policies that support the habit, or is it that it's become impossible to travel efficiently in other ways? Uh, like, do you have a thought, Greg, on like which comes first? Yeah, I would. Um, I would probably suggest looking at it slightly different way. Not because only because I don't think there's a great way to disentangle that, right? And you end up getting into historical questions, and then it's like, do we, you know, do we? How much do we care what decisions were made in 1950 and that sort of thing? So what I would ask is, you know. Um, should we create a system so that everybody can get to uh, their core destinations that are necessities um, without a car, at least in cities of a certain size, right? You, you're not going to have a system where there's robust public transit in uh, a tiny rural area. The density won't support that without enormous public expenditure, which we can talk about, but that's probably not where to start, right? But in a place like Houston, fourth biggest city in the country, um, it's really the poorest people who don't have cars and they have a much lower quality of life as a result. Um, and so, you know, when you think about how to provide, uh, not just transportation, but ideally, um, reduce the need for transportation by legalizing construction of, uh, grocery stores and other necessities that are close enough that people don't need to drive in the first place. And we also need public transit, but, um, you know, then the second point is that the the we here is is probably um, heterogeneous, like more heterogeneous than might be evident from, say, a, um, a radio uh, show that does like a traffic report uh, mm -hmm. where really their 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 intended audience is is drivers stuck in traffic. Um, I've never heard it listened for or looked out for a traffic report when I'm walking to work. Um or even if I'm taking public transportation. And so you have a, a situation where people who actually have, um, when they do have more efficient mechanisms for, to get to work are, are actually less engaged and less um, politicized. And so there's there are many dimensions to this, but um, I would say, you know, I'm focused on creating that universal ability to access destinations regardless of car ownership. Um, and then, there will, there's no country in the world, including countries where people uh, uh, get around by transit or by bicycle, for example, much more than the U.S. In, in places like Denmark, where that's true, or the Netherlands, most people own cars, right? And, and people can drive very freely. In fact, they have much better maintained roads. Anybody who's driven over there will tell you that it's, it's a pleasure to drive, whereas driving in Houston or in Chicago or in New York City is anything but a pleasure. Absolutely. 
Um, I, you know, I, I live in Lex, I live in Charlottesville and work in Lexington. Um, and what I tell people when they're like, how do you live an hour away from work? And I'm like, well, when I was in Houston, I lived nine miles from work and that was an hour, except it was not a drive through the mountains. That was pleasant. It was sitting on the off-ramp that uh, Greg had to cross when he walked and waiting like 30 minutes, uh, just, you know, at a complete stop. Uh, Now, Sarah, now that you're back, um, you know, Greg and I were kind of talking about, you know, how is it even in places without zoning like Houston that we end up with these structures? Yes. I was trying to say when I, before I got cut off by my lovely internet that, um, I'm from Houston as well. Um, So I grew up in Gulfton, which is, uh, I guess, the Sharpstown greater orbit. Um, And uh, obviously, uh, the hodgepodge of land uses contributes to um, some negative consequences in the city. And the amount of driving that people have to do in Houston is not really, um, because there's no zoning, it's not, not reinforced. It's, 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 uh, reinforce it's it's the driving is created because assumptions by city leaders are that everybody will continue to want to drive and so why not keep expanding West Timer why not keep expanding the highways um, but the reality is is that many people in Houston don't have cars the meager bike lanes that have been uh, put up downtown uh, and other places do get used. Uh, people have started to use the uh, light rail medical center to downtown. That's That's been there for several years, and I know it's um, been expanded. It's not huge ridership because it doesn't go far enough, but um, the fact that we redesigned Main Street uh, in Houston to accommodate for that new type of transportation suggests maybe there's hope, um, but people need to show city leaders that they want that kind of transportation by actually using it. So I would encourage my fellow uh, native Houstonians to 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 show their support of, tra- of uh, transit options, so the city leaders don't keep assuming that that's how they want to live. Yeah, and you know, I think I think the biggest problem with the public transportation in Houston is being stranded. Right. Um, when, whenever I think about when I'm home and I'm like, I could walk to the light rail station. It's like, but wait, what time does it run? How far does it go? You know, I, it's, you know, Greg and I were talking about, I I call it like a chicken egg problem. Like, do I really want to drive my car all the time? Or like, are the structures not in place? So that like, it it feels like this vicious cycle. Uh, But I just know of how many times, you know, my dad likes to take the rail, for example. Um, and essentially he's taking the light rail because he knows that one of us can come pick him up if he's stranded, right? Like, because it right. happens in Houston, right? Like the rail stops running yeah. at, at weird times of day. I think that underscores the difficulty of being an individual in a system, right? Uh, swimming upstream, it's only going to get you so far. In the case of the light rail, um, you know, I was excited to take it and did take it sometimes when I lived there, but they made a decision at some point uh, to not give it dedicated right of way. And um, the trade-offs in transportation are not always zero sum, but when you're talking about the right of way, meaning the space between the buildings, you know, where you have the street and then sidewalk, if there's a sidewalk, you are making allocation decisions there where um, to the extent that there's a lot of demand for that space, it will fill up. And so you have to make choices affirmatively about what you want to fill that space. And so if you allow the train to be, bogged down in car traffic, it's going to be slow, probably slower than the cars, actually, even though it's in the same traffic, because it has to stop at the stations in addition to the stoplights. And it's very big and lumbering. 
Um, so that was a choice that they made. Other cities have made different choices um, that separate the grade uh, or give it their own its own uh, dedicated right of way, and then it's faster. So let's take the L in Chicago, for example. In most places, it doesn't have to um, interact with cars, so it can move more quickly. I don't know why we didn't elevate it. Um, and (laughs) you two can tell me why, I mean, I know it's the cost. I understand it's totally Uh, the cost. Um, partly, partly the cost. What do you think the property owners who, uh, uh, are next door would say, they would say people are going to hang out underneath and it's going to become this like gross, like a, like having a highway overpass, but all the way, of course, Houston has millions of those, but, um, (laughs) Generally, I don't know the story specifically, but in most cases, it's absolutely a mix of cost and politics. And, and even getting the light rail done as it was, was a, uh, a big political lift. And often you get these compromises that end up, they seem like they're 50-50. It's like, you didn't want light rail and you did want light rail. So now we have it, but it's shares with the cars that seems like uh, a compromise. But it's at some point, it's kind of like splitting the baby where um, you actually don't get even half of the result. Um because it's so bogged down in traffic that ridership remains low. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I would say it's mostly only useful for, you know, med center employees who park and ride, um, you know, from downtown rodeo. It's great. Right. During the rodeo, everyone takes the light rail, Absolutely. but I've t- I take know, it for rodeo. Yeah. Right. But the rest of the year it, it feels inconvenient. I would take it for doctor's appointments when I worked downtown because mm-hmm. it made sense. Uh, but otherwise I wasn't really taking it. You know, now for the next segment, I'd, I'd love to talk about what many people think was, which is what's the big deal here. And I think everyone thinks it's a big deal right now because gas is really expensive and they are looking for alternatives. But you know, when gas prices recover and we all kind of get more complacent, folks seem to think, "Why is this a big deal? It's okay. I live out of my car, and I still do because I'm a native Houstonian, and it's a bad habit. Um, and I like being able to haul my entire life with me." Um, but then people also have the other perspective of, well, can we even do anything about it? Are we too far gone? Um, so I'll kind of start with you on this one, Greg. Um, is this really an issue we should care about? Should we really be trying uh, to to think about alternatives? Yeah, I, absolutely. You know, the, the the problems associated with fossil fuels are so vast that you know, we could spend the rest of the hour talking about it, right? Setting us, so you have costs to households, you have greenhouse gas emissions. Then you have the fact that it, you know, props up uh, dictators in uh, countries where, you know, they're able to oppress their populations and make war and so on. And then U.S. foreign policy gets embroiled in that. I'm not even just talking about what's going on right now, but think back to prior generations and oil shocks and so on. So I think if, if we could be, less, you know, dependent on oil, um, we'd be better off as a society in basically every single category. Um, and but that being said, in the moment, absolutely, it's hitting the pocketbooks of regular people. Um, the other things, you know, there are a lot of other things that are hitting regular people's pocketbooks right now. So, you know, like rent increases and other price increases. Um, and then we have uh, people who aren't driving right? Because they can't afford a car or maybe they have one car in their household, but they primarily get around by bus. And um, it's not likely that they're being directly impacted if they aren't driving by by rising gas prices, Um, but they are impacted by service cuts. And there have been so many service cuts to public transit um, as a wave of cuts post-2008. And then there were COVID cuts. And I don't think there's 
I mean, it might be one or two, but I don't think there are really many agencies that have come back from their um, COVID cuts completely. And uh, so these are, you know, people who are struggling too, but they, they really are not, their struggles are not the focus of policy conversations right now. Now, Sarah, do you have ideas for, um, well, first I'd love if you could shed light on some of the other policies um, that are out there um, that facilitate our car culture. Um, and then think about, you know, are, are there other things or other reasons why we should care about this? Yeah, well, well, one of the reasons is um, that American roads have become increasingly dangerous. If you look at even during the pandemic, when we were supposedly doing less driving, people were driving faster and there were more road deaths and injuries, um, it, higher year over year increase than something like 96 years uh, in 2020 when it came to, uh, to, to road deaths. Um, and that, I believe, continued last year when we just got the statistics, I think, a couple weeks ago. So the, it's not just these broader societal and economic implications of using cars that should lead us to care, but it's that all of us who use roads, which are most of us every day, um, have uh, 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 are vulnerable because of the danger of our roads. Um, so in terms of uh, policies, I mean, for, to your question, oh, should we do anything? Should we just give up? No, of course we should, we should never give up. <laughs> I mean, that's, that's you know, the, the whole, um, you know, I guess the whole impetus for being a, a law professor and, and, you know, trying to influence some of these policies at the local level, in my view anyway, is, because the law can improve, because we can make it better, because we have to make it better. So I guess I'm an optimist in that regard. So no, never give up. Uh, fight for every intersection out there if you're listening. Um, and uh, some of the things you can do in terms of policies uh, to make that happen are to look at the way that your local government, uh, look at the design manual, if you can find it, of your local government. Try to figure out how city engineers are making decisions try to go to planning and zoning commission meetings, see what they say when they're approving large projects, including subdivision projects that lay out roads, speak at public meetings, uh, try to explain to policymakers that there are lots of different ways that people want to get around our cities and fight for those ways to be included in zoning codes. I was just looking, I'm writing a book on zoning and I was just looking at the zoning code of San Diego which rezoned a couple of its major shopping centers, Fashion Valley and Mission Mission Valley, um, to allow for densification because these were pretty old-fashioned malls um, type type developments. And one of the things they did in their zoning code was they said that for any lot over five acres, the um, property owner would have to put in bicycle paths through the lot and paseos, which are pedestrian walkways through the lot. Um, so those are the kinds of things that um, cities are doing that are creative, that help to create the infrastructure for the actual movement. At the same time, we should look at policies that are creating infrastructure that supports the things that we could use to get around in more efficient ways. So one of those things is bike parking. Lots of cities uh, are starting to consider this. Some have adopted it. Hartford, where I was chair of the commission, did adopt bike parking requirements. City of Cambridge has them, um, uh, other cities around the country. And what those are, are anytime something new gets built, 
you have to put a certain number of bike parking spaces. Now, this may seem pretty um, it, uh, it, dumb or straight or obvious, but the reality is, is we don't have places where people can actually park their bikes, even if they decide to use them. So indoor facilities for office workers and, and, and college students, um, outdoor facilities for short-term uh, bikers who want to just pop in and out of a retail shop. All of that kind of infrastructure is something that needs to be created. If it's not created by the public, it can be created through private developers, private property owners who are improving their properties over time. And that's something else that can be instituted through zoning or city ordinance. So those are just a few ideas of how we might start, uh, how you might start the process as listeners um, to try to break that dependency in your own communities. Now, now, Greg, earlier you mentioned some of the the racial implications of of our policies and our structures. Um, Could you just explain to the audience, you know, how the ways that our roads are designed and the way the law um, around driving has had racial implications? So like a lot of things in our society, um, ostensibly neutral sources of regulation have uh, disparate impacts, right? So um, because they interact with other structures in our society to produce those consequences. So um, black pedestrians, for example, are at a much higher risk of being struck and killed by drivers. Now, there are some confounding variables there because you have to consider the fact that People of different races don't live in exactly the same places. So there are lots and lots of different um, things that could influence that type of outcome. Um, the authors of the study that I'm referring to here, uh, which is done by Smart Growth America, controlled for that, or at least controlled for probably the most important one, which is walking rates um, at the census track level. So that you would expect, for example, that people who are pedestrians more often um, might be at higher risk of being struck as a pedestrian. They controlled for that. And they still found that Black people were at a risk of, uh, it's about two-thirds, if I recall, um, wow. higher chance than than white people of being killed by a driver. There are also studies that show that drivers don't yield to Black pedestrians mm-hmm. as frequently as they do to non-Black pedestrians by, by a significant margin. Um, and uh, for many of us, that, that doesn't sound surprising given other things that we know about our society. Um, Native Americans face an even higher risk. Uh, it's about twice the uh, population as a whole um, and a little bit more than twice uh, white people. Um, and that's uh, partly due to reservations, Native American reservations having just terrible infrastructure, um, both for driving and especially for walking. Um, and so uh, about three quarters of pedestrian deaths overall happen at night. And so you have to think about the interaction of these factors. You have no sidewalk and you're walking on the side of the road in a maybe a reservation, not a particularly built up area, and there's no lighting, right? I mean, that's that's not an ingredient for safety. Um, and um, so you know, that's, that's one glimpse of them. Um, the more layers of the onion you peel back, the honestly, the worst it, it gets. Um, you know, your ability to survive a car crash depends on a lot of things. One of them is the quality of medical care that you can expect. Um, and so I personally think it's appropriate for planners and transportation engineers to take that into account when they are building systems to optimize for safety. So if you know that a lot of people served by your transportation system are going to have difficulty getting excellent medical care, then that should probably influence you know, how you rank safety among your priorities. And the law will tell you safety is job one, and then they'll 
give you 50 reasons why it can't be for this project where you're proposing a safety enhancement. Um, so even within the U.S., there are states that are about four times, the safest states uh, in terms of road mortality risk are about four times uh, safer than the most dangerous states. That's a tremendous amount of variation. And a lot of it has to do with road design. Other things are more indirect, like the quality of hospitals and the prevalence of medical insurance. And you know those latter two things are really beyond the influence of a city planner or a transportation uh, official or engineer. Um, but they do have control over how safe their systems are. And so I, you know, that's a reason to optimize there. Um, and uh, because of broader socioeconomic inequalities, Black Americans have ac- have worse access to medical care, right? Because um, partly as a function of income and partly as a function of racism. Uh, and so that's one reason why um, it's more dangerous uh, to be a Black pedestrian and to be a, a Black driver than to be a white one. Sarah, you can go ahead. Yeah, I'll just add that um, you know similar statistics are true for the Latino community as well um, as well as older people um, who tend to be vulnerable uh, pedestrians and bikers. I will add to the factors too uh, in terms of the injury, um, the design of the vehicle that hits you. So the fact that we have different vehicle standards in the United States than they do in Europe seems to be leading to a much higher rate of fatalities uh, and injuries among people in smaller cars and pedestrians and bikers who are hit by some of the very large cars that we allow from our through our vehicle design standards. So we might say that um, the, 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 the way that the federal government regulates vehicles also plays a role. So if you're hit by a very large uh, pumped up truck, um, it's a, you have a very different likelihood of um, survival than you are if you're hit by a low, let's maybe say Toyota Prius or something, which um, hits you in the legs as opposed to in the chest. So tall dashboards, um, the fact that we can have these really huge tires that, that make cars taller, even when they're not designed uh, with tall dashboards in mind. The fact that the fronts of cars in the United States can be fortified to a much stronger degree than in Europe, that we can uh, put bull bars on the front of our cars, which harden the car and protect the passengers of the car, but actually make it much more dangerous and deadly for people who are hit by that car, whether they're in smaller cars or pedestrians or bikers. So when a car doesn't is so strong that it doesn't crumble, that means that the impact on the other um, the third party is much more dangerous. So I'll just throw vehicle design in there as something that I would encourage um, us to look at. Although you know many of us who work in local communities um, and in planning fields uh, don't have the expertise to influence that kind of design. And in fact, the system is set up such that only really car makers um, can influence those kinds of standards at the federal level or car makers are people who are deeply, deeply enmeshed in car design um, as opposed to ordinary people. And and that too is one of the the problems with our system is that advocates and and ordinary people who have experienced the impacts of poor road design, poor vehicle design, poor city design um, don't really have a forum where they can go and voice those concerns and make real change in, in the law. You know, I don't know if y'all know the answer to this, but like, you know, 
is the way that we super fortify our vehicles in, in the United States necessary? Like, is it resulting in fewer vehicle fatalities than like in Europe where, you know, the cars don't have all these bars on them and super big tires? It's resulting in more protection for the passengers of those cars and much less protection for anybody that's hit by those cars. I think that's how I would summarize the t- statistics. And Greg, feel free to chime in there. But um, I think I think that's a reasonable yeah. inference. I haven't. So I have the same concerns as Sarah. Um, I'm I've been looking for. I think it's just too new of a trend to have hard data on the the the, the impact. So we know that when people are hit by large heavy vehicles, they have a lower chance of survival. What we don't know is how the visibility trade-offs interact with that. And these large vehicles have a real blind spot right in front, but they also have visibility advantages on other dimensions. And the very big trucks tend to be less common in the most pedestrian heavy areas compared to uh, other areas. So I'm, I uh, absolutely agree it's cause for concern. I think regulators ought to look at it. My understanding is that they are in the current administration. I don't know, you know exactly where they are at that. I think car makers have a reduced responsibility to the public and to their own shareholders to look at this. Um, because of the possibility of uh, litigation, um, both uh, mass tort and shareholder litigation. And I would hope that car companies would step up um, and study this. Um, the U.S. Have, has far worse just, safety just outcomes. On that, I'm sorry. Just, just, <clears throat> I was say, just on that point, there are a couple of studies, though, and I, I cited a couple of them in, in an article that I just published called Rules of the Road. Um, uh, and there's one... I was trying to find it, um, but there's one from 2002, 2012, rather, called Bull Bars and Vulnerable Road Users, which actually yep. summarizes some of those studies. So I think that there's a little bit out there just to before you move on to the next point, but not, no, not much, bull, like you said. Absolutely. So Bull Bars, there are studies on. They've been outlawed in a few countries, um, but not in the U.S. These wow. are, for, for any listeners who may not be familiar, these are the, like, if you look at your typical police car these days, it has these aggressive looking bars on the front. And then a lot of private citizens have also added them to the front of their vehicles. Um, they, uh, right. So they're, they're outlawed in the UK and some other countries because of their negative impacts um, on people and cars that they hit. Um, the, the other, you know, the, the SUVs and, and the truck stuff, there's um, I, you know, I have not found evidence persuasive on that yet, but I think it's a reasonable inference that they are more dangerous. One reason to think that the problem, um, that that's one component, but not the full story in our, you know, radically disproportionate uh, bad outcomes on road safety is that in the U.S. and Canada alike, um, SUVs and trucks have taken off in the 2010s and in the last few years, Um, but Canada has half, their roads are twice as safe as ours, so they have half the road mortality risk as a percentage of the population, you have one half the risk in Canada of being killed by a car that you do in the US. Um, and that's true, even though they've they've undergone a similar transformation in, in their fleet uh, from cars to trucks in the last decade or so. So I, I think there are a lot of, we should absolutely pull on this lever labor, labeled vehicle design. Um, but one thing that I try to get across in you know, talking about law and transportation is that there's, it's, there are, you know, so many dimensions. And so it's important to pull on all of them. Um, but there isn't one, one quick, there's no like uh, 
plastic straw that we can ban to get our way out of this. <laughs> Not that banning plastic straws does anything. Um, I am pro plastic straw. I am very pro plastic straw as well. Um, I, I don't. Yeah. I, I just think, you know, corporations are using billions of gallons of oil and you want me to drink out of a paper straw. Like I, I don't really understand um, what, what that does. You know, now, now one thing that I think about though, you know, as y'all are talking, I think about myself personally, because as I said, I'm a native Houstonian. I live in my car. Um, and I think about what made me stop driving sedans and what made me start driving SUVs. And some of that was the amount of other cars on the road, how big the other cars on the road are. Like, I feel like I'm going to die in a little car. And so then I need to get a bigger car and I'm not very tall. So it's like, I need to get a bigger car because I don't feel safe. But then the, all the other people get bigger cars. And like, it, it feels like it just becomes this vicious cycle of, you know, I can't live without my car. I need the biggest fortress of a car possible because there's so many other huge cars on the road. And then it's like, oh, wait, but that person has the bull bars on their car. Well, now I need an even bigger SUV. And then it does all the things to the environment. And then it does all the things with, you know, the parking design, which I actually didn't get a chance to talk to Sarah about. Um, you know, when I was reading through your papers, I had no idea that there are requirements of a minimum number of parking spaces when you oh. build it. No clue. And so could you just like inform people about that? Because I've always wondered, you know, like, why does this shopping mall here with like a hundred parking spaces or why is there this mega ugly parking deck here? So just talk about like what minimum parking requirements are and like how that just fuels our need for cars even more. Yeah, so minimum parking requirements usually established through zoning, but actually in Houston established through city ordinance, um, require a certain number of parking spaces for every kind of new development that happens in a city. So if you are building an apartment building, a, a zoning code might say you have to put two spaces for every uh, unit of apart apartment. Um, if you're building an office building, often the number is one, two, or three parking spaces for every 1,000 square feet of usable floor area. If you're building a restaurant, if you're putting it, even a restaurant owner has to have a minimum number of parking spaces. Oftentimes, these parking requirements are as much or more than the actual square footage um, that it's tied to. So some restaurants might have a requirement that it's three parking spaces for every 1,000 square feet. Well, when you put three cars together and you use the parking aisle, that's over 1,000 square feet. So you're sometimes required to build more parking than you are the thing itself. So this is problematic for a number of reasons. First, kind of going back to that bike parking requirement that I talked about, if you build the infrastructure for certain types of transportation, people will tend to use that type of transportation. We've built all this infrastructure through these incremental piecemeal zoning requirements for cars. We've built parking lots for cars. So the easiest way to get to that restaurant is usually going to be to drive because if you have a vast sea of parking, if you're going to a shopping mall with a vast sea of parking, it's you could maybe take, maybe there's a bus line, maybe you could get there, but but walking through that parking lot is so terribly unpleasant that you just say, okay, I'm just, if I have a car, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to drive. So it encourages driving, and studies have shown that that's the case. The more parking that's provided, the more likely it is people drive. There is a link. The other thing that parking requirements do is they drive up prices of development. So what they do, particularly for housing, is they make housing more expensive 
because if you have a given lot, let's say it's an acre, and you're trying to build 10 units of housing, a 10-unit apartment building, you have to sometimes build, let's say, 20, maybe sometimes 30 parking spaces for those 10 units. And what that does is it increases the amount of land that you have to devote to parking, and it shrinks the amount of land on that lot that you can devote to housing. So it makes the house, sometimes it reduces the amount of housing that can be provided. At one place where we know that that's certainly true is Connecticut, where I've looked at zoning codes covering every single inch of the state and looking at 15 towns with high walk scores. So places where you, you should want to walk from place to place because they have that infrastructure. We found that there are hundreds of thousands of units of housing that are specifically prohibited from being built because of parking requirements, keeping every other zoning constraint equal, keeping minimum lot size, maximum lot coverage, height requirements, et cetera. So, so we modeled in every lot buildings that can be built and showed, and hopefully we'll publish that research soon, but showed that parking requirements constrain housing in, in these 15 cities alone to the tune of hundreds of thousands of units. Hartford is the first city in the country that completely banned minimum parking requirements. Um, when I was in the Planning and Zoning Commission, Bridgeport nearby completely banned minimum parking requirements too. Um, but even in places where you think that they're turning the tide, um, they, they haven't quite done it fully yet. Um, Buffalo was the first to do it on a um, to, for uses over fi- under 5,000 square feet. So they were the first... Uh, on that front, but in terms of citywide, um, I, I claim Hartford as, as being that uh, that pioneer. And I really hope other cities do that. I say every time I talk about zoning, that minimum parking requirements are the number one thing that every zoning administrator should get rid of immediately with no regrets. Because if people want to build the parking and they need to build the parking, they will build it. Instead, cities should impose maximums on parking, um, and some have. So in San Diego, by the way, in that zone that I was just talking about with the um, the infill development, trying to create new development in these shopping centers, they've imposed a maximum of 5.5 parking spaces uh, per unit or something crazy. So it, like even when you impose a maximum, you got to impose it low enough so that people won't build the kind of parking that we see already. But anyway, it's a start. I just think about the pain of walking across a hot parking lot of asphalt on a summer day. Yeah, the and how that affects yeah. stormwater runoff, um, the pollution that driving causes. It's an environmental disaster. Um, in Connecticut, we actually just passed statewide reform that caps um, minimum parking requirements for all towns for housing. Um, towns can opt out, but again, at least it's a start. I think these things need to be, they're critical, but you know, a lot of people think, uh, I can never find parking when I want it. And so mm-hmm. why are you going to go take my parking from me? Houston has about 30 spaces per person. There are about 30 parking spaces mm-hmm. in Houston per person. And that's not because the free market decided that their demand for parking was so high that they had to build that many. Uh, it's because it's legally required. Um, wow. And that that is an extreme case, but versions of that are true everywhere. So Des Moines has something like uh, 10 spaces per person. That means if you're sitting on your couch, you know, watching Netflix, um, there are 30 parking spaces just out there waiting for you to go to simultaneously <laughs> a restaurant, a cafe, the movie theater. The fact that you can't build a bar without building oceans of parking is absurd. I mean, that should really give us pause um, if we 
care about the things that we purport to care about. Um, for, for anybody who's skeptical, what I would urge you to do is go to Google Maps, turn on satellite view wherever you are, and zoom out. And just mentally circle all of the areas that are parking lots or parking structures. Remembering that a parking structure is the equivalent of you know many, many times of its, its size in uh, area. Um, and I think you'll find for everywhere in America, except for Manhattan, that the off-street parking uh, is just absolutely enormous. In Detroit, I think it's a 40% of the land area, for example. Oh. Then consider all the on-street parking. And in most places, you can park on the street at a low subsidized cost or for free um, most hours of the day. So factor that, you know, draw, circle those areas um, and then think about people's garages and driveways and things of that nature. And you get, you begin to get a handle on um, how much parking we actually have and if we're willing to walk, you know, two blocks, then we really can reduce like a huge proportion of the parking that we have without really any reduction in quality of life. Actually an improvement because we'll be able to build more housing, housing will be more affordable, we'll have more amenities and less just open space that bakes uh, the planet and um, ends up creating these, you know, places that are not fun to walk. I, I just think about 30 parking spaces per person in Houston and that feel like given how many people are in Houston um, and then combine that with how wide I-10 is these days. Um, mm -hmm. I, I, like 26, 26 yeah. lanes. Yeah. It just feels insane. It feels totally insane. Now I would like to have our last segment be a positive because, you know, we kind of get negative Nancy when we talk about the law. Um, and so I would love for both of you, you know, if, if you could wave a magic wand or be a genie and rub a lamp. In an ideal world, what would the policies look like? What would it look like to be less dependent on driving? Sarah, you can go first. Oh gosh, well, I already gave my my big reveal on the zoning side that parking requirements should be eliminated. Um, that's a, a, a talking point that has bipartisan appeal, I think. Um, the thing I would do for street design is to have communities, even if they're rural communities, actually look at the NACTO street design guide, um, which is uh, the, the National Association of City Transportation Officials. Take a look at that and consider how some of the streets that are offered um, as ideal streets in that manual might actually help to improve quality of life. Um, improve the beauty of your community, but also improve its functionality for people, no matter what kind of mode of transportation they use. Um, I would also make sure, you know, in general conversations about policies that the needs of underrepresented groups, uh, whether that be underrepresented racial and ethnic minorities, but also older people, um, and particularly one group we haven't talked about yet, which is the dis disabled, um, how their voices can be better centered in conversations, especially at those federal levels, whether drafting the manual and uniform traffic control devices. And Greg and I have a piece on this one um, that uh, that talks about how this representation works or doesn't work um, or uh, drafting vehicle design standards. Um, so I would encourage us to think more about how those voices can be centered um, and then finally, the the vehicle design standards. I, I would say, although I'm I'm you know, focused on the land use and the planning sides, the vehicle design standards are really important. And for those who have the technical expertise to do that, um, I think that there's a lot that can be learned from European design standards um, and how we might make sure that the roads are safer for everybody by considering adopting some of those. 
So those are some of my quick ideas off the cuff. Um, and I'll pitch it over to Greg because I know he has tons more. <laughs> those are all great ideas. Um, you know, uh, generally I would think about these things in terms of carrots and sticks. And so the, the stick idea would be something along the lines of a carbon tax, which if um, current outrage about gas prices uh, doesn't give people pause about the political viability of that type of thing. You know, I would I would uh, urge people to reflect on that a little bit. Um, you know, economists have been pushing this for at least 15 years, and um, even states like uh, Washington uh, and others that are environmentally conscious have have been opposing them um, in referenda and in in legislation. So I think, and that was before prices went up. So. Um, I, you know, looking on the carrot side, I would take the, if I were, if I had a magic wand, uh, I would take the zoning code and put it in the trash and just start anew and write something that's like one page long that says you can't put, you know, a garbage dump next to a preschool and, you know, you can't put a 100, you know, a Jeff Bezos, if he has some, you know, egotistical uh, dream, he wants to put a, a one thousand story skyscraper, the tallest in the world in a small town. He can't do that. Okay. So let's take the extremes off the table and let people build what they want, where they want, which used to be the case until about a hundred years ago. Um, and it, it's not an accident that now you know, we've had about 40 years of restrictive zoning and a little bit longer for some of the parking uh, mandates. And that's created this sprawly, unaffordable landscape. And now we have a, a real housing crisis more than even a, uh, a gas crisis uh, as a result. And we can, there is a way to address both of those, which is just to build more units, but that's illegal right now. Um, so we should change that. And, you know, but I mean, I think, you know, how does that impact places like Houston with no zoning? Um, yeah. Yeah. So, so Houston there, has, oh, yeah. Well, you know, the alleged no zoning, I should say well, right. no zoning that's in airports. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I was just going to say that the uh, of many, many residential subdivisions that have built in, been built in Houston are subject to restrictive covenants, which control what uh, is built from a use perspective, but also from a design perspective. So those communities that, that may not have zoning that have sprung up around the country because they're in out-of-the-way unincorporated areas, they still have restrictive covenants, which often establish very similar um, uh, guiding principles as well as similar administrative procedures in terms of design review committees by the homeowners association and so on that control uh, the, the scale and the development of a community just the same way that zoning does. So Houston does have that. It also does have, and you know, as, as we were talking about earlier, um, other things in the city ordinance, minimum lot sizes and parking requirements um, which do uh, have, <laughs> which are in every zoning code in the country virtually. Um, and in addition, Texas has a, a state law that, that talks about um, zoning codes, land, land use regulations, and the way that cities can adopt those. And I was just, um, in, I wrote an amicus brief for this um, case involving the city of Houston that just was handed down a few months ago where the Texas Supreme Court said the city's historic preservation ordinance was in fact land use regulation um, mm -hmm. under a narrow meaning in the, in the statute and thus had to abide by certain procedures in order to be adopted, which the city did, fortunately. Um, but it, the Supreme Court didn't say that the historic preservation ordinance was zoning in its 
uh, pure sense, but it did say that under this narrow statutory sense that that the city's historic preservation ordinance was was land use regulation. And so I just use that as an example to say that Houston has a lot of land use regulation, more than meets the eye. Um, but the interesting thing about it is that like many Southern cities, a lot of what was developed is dictated by restrictive covenants. And those cannot be undone uh, without really significant um, homeowner support, um, majority, sometimes two thirds, sometimes, sometimes unanimous changes to change the deed. Um, so it can be, those can be much more problematic actually than zoning in a place like Houston. Another thing is they've, you know, in Houston, they've relaxed their minimum lot sizes. They haven't abolished them completely, but they've they've made them, they've shrunk them significantly. So you can, there's a lot of the development inside the 610 loop, which is the kind of center of the Houston uh, donut, if you will, um, is, has been infill for the past uh, 10 years or so, a little bit longer. Um, so they've built a lot more townhouses, you know, um, density doesn't have to look like Manhattan. It can look um, it, it can be four stories. It can be three stories, but close together. If these, if the buildings are close together, or even touching, um, that's just a much more economical use of the land, which means um, people can live closer to work. They can pay less for a house. Property taxes can be lower for anybody else who lives around there, as well as the people moving in. Um, and then think about all the knock-on effects for schools and other public services. If you have more revenue, and people don't have to travel as far and spend as much of their time on the road. So Greg kind of killed my closing question. Uh, we only have two minutes to close. I'll let Sarah take this one um, to, to, to take us out. You know, what do you say someone who's the crazy Texan who wants their acre lot and their huge truck, you know, what's your pitch for them to buy into this idea that we need, you know, reform of our driving culture? Well, I think that there are lots of ways that we build now that would enable that person. And I wouldn't call them crazy. That's just, um, you know, it's just a, a, a preference that's influenced by lots of different things. Um, but uh, there's a lot of places that we already create that would allow somebody to have a one acre home uh, and drive everywhere they want to go. But what we don't have is options for everything else. In Connecticut, where we did our study, we found that 81% of residential land required about a one-acre minimum lot size. 50% required a two-acre minimum lot size. Meanwhile, only 2% of land in the state is zoned to allow multifamily housing as of right. So those numbers should paint, I think, a picture, if you caught them, um, that we allow so much of one kind of housing that we and so much of one kind of land development because where we live after all really dictates how our communities are organized um, that it really is time for us to try to allow other options and that's how i would put it is that we're really trying to create choices for people not to constrain because there's plenty of options for that person uh, to, to live the way they want to live but to enable more options for people so that we can have more equitable and sustainable and connected places as we move further into the 22nd century. Well, thank you so much to my guests. That was a perfect close, Sarah. Um, you know, thank you all for listening to Getting Common. I hope you were all enlightened as I am by their scholarship and their conversations. Um, they both have websites. They both have all of their scholarship on SSRN. Um, so please, you know, Google both of them and look them up if you're more interested in this stuff. Um, if you ever miss an episode of the show, you can catch the rebroadcast anywhere uh, that podcasts play on the Voice America Network and on our YouTube channel. 
feel free to send me emails to the show page or reach out on social media. Thank you all for listening. Thank you for tuning in to Getting Common with Professor Carlos Chapman. Please join us again next Wednesday at 8 a.m. Pacific Time and 11 a.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Empowerment Channel for another thoughtful discussion. 